0: My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Deanna Batista, an assistant professor of molecular and cellular biology at UC Berkeley. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Batista.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So could you talk a little bit about how you grew up and what the path that you took towards science was? From what I understand, it wasn't a precisely straight line.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I came to science uh, later in life, I think, than most people. I grew up in Chicago, in the inner city, and went to public school. And I have to say that they did the best they could, but science education wasn't very modern, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I always liked science, but I never thought of it as a career. And so I ended up going to study fine art when Mm -hmm. I first went to college. And I was a really bad artist. So which (laughs) is what's an example
0: of some really bad art that you made when you were in in college?
1: Oh, like you know, you think about how people make really wonderful sculptures out of discarded recycled items. Mm -hmm. Um I made lots of bad (laughs) art out of old recycled (laughs) items, which was fine. It was really fun. But I think I knew that it wasn't going to be a viable career choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. So um, I actually took a few years off of school and figured out what I wanted to do. And it was actually working with an environmental group that I got interested in science, looking at dioxins in the Great Lakes. And so I taught myself chemistry and learned how to read epidemiological reports and got me interested in environmental science, but from the more science chemistry side. Mm-hmm. So I took three years off after a year of school. And, and then I ended up going to the University of Oregon because I had a really exciting environmental science program uh-huh. that focused more on the science rather than the ecology side, which was not so common at the time. Um, and this was in the mid-90s. And I went there and I took a neurochemistry class and I really loved neuro and and really loved chemistry and ended up getting a degree in biochemistry. And then I applied to graduate school in chemistry and in neuroscience. And it was hard to decide and ended up going to graduate school at Stanford in the neuroscience program.
0: Yeah. So that was actually my next question. As you mentioned, you did your PhD work actually in my present department in Rich Lewis's lab, which is just down the hall from mine. Uh, where you study calcium signaling. Could you just tell us briefly what what your dissertation was about?
1: Sure. In um, Rich's lab, everybody was interested in calcium signaling in immune cells and the mechanisms that trigger calcium influx, which we know played an important role in uh, cytokine release from T-lymphocytes and launching the immune response. And I performed calcium imaging and patch clamping to look at calcium dynamics that shape calcium oscillations.
0: Mm -hmm. So then you moved a very far distance to San Francisco, uh, (laughs) where you studied the uh, molecular and cellular mechanisms of somatosensation as a postdoc in David Julius's lab. So just so we're all on the same page, could you give us a basic overview of what somatosensation is?
1: Sure. Our somatosensory system mediates the sensations of itch, touch, and pain. And there are a variety of different types of somatosensory neurons. And if you think about these experiences, our ability to feel light brush or a breeze on a warm day or to recoil from touching a hot frying pan, our somatosensory system mediates these diverse sensations. And as you might expect, there are many different types of somatosensory neurons that are fine-tuned to detect these different environmental stimuli.
0: So while you were in Julius's lab, you published a paper where you showed that a particular ion channel called a one is an important component in processing of environmental irritants and in the subjective experience of pain. Could you provide us with a bit of a historical perspective on what people thought about the neural basis of this kind of sensation was? Like for instance, was it obvious to people that there was a specific ion channel that mediated pain?
1: So this was a big debate in the field whether or not there are specific neurons that are fine-tuned to noxious stimuli, or whether there are a broad class of neurons that when you activate them a little bit, you get an innocuous sensation. And if you activate them a lot, then you get a painful sensation. Opposed to this labeled line theory where there's specific nociceptors and specific light touch receptors.
0: So what was the status of the debate um, when you started as a postdoc?
1: When I started as a postdoc, two ion channels had been identified that mediate thermosensation. The capsaicin receptor TRPV1, which we knew was required for noxious heat detection, and the menthol receptor TRPM8, which is an ion channel that is opened in response to menthol or cold. Mm -hmm. For TRPV1, the knockout mouse had been developed by Michael Katerina and colleagues, and that mouse showed clear deficits in normal heat sensation, as well as um, hypersensitivity to thermal stimuli after injury. And TripaMate at the time was a proposed cold sensor. Mm -hmm. The knockout had not been made. And so when I was a postdoc, I was interested in a couple of different things. When I joined the lab, I wanted to learn mouse genetics and mouse behavior. And so I worked to develop and characterize a TripaMate knockout mouse, Mm -hmm. which is very insensitive to cold stimuli, and the mice also after injury don't develop cold allodynia, which is noxious sensation from cool breeze or temperatures.
0: You phrase the debate as labeled lines versus a sort of gradient of response of the same neurons. Did this molecular composition kind of settle the debate for people, or was there more evidence that was needed?
1: I think that there are multiple camps in the field right now, uh-huh. even and especially if you go beyond just temperature sensation, and start to look at other sensory modalities, light touch, uh, vibration sensation, and itch, mm-hmm. I think this intensity theory versus labeled lines theory is still controversial. I think most people feel that they're both right. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I think there's very strong molecular genetic evidence for distinct labeled lines.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that brings me to my next question. A couple of years ago, your lab published a paper about the same TRIP A1 channel being an essential component for the signaling pathway that elicits the sensation of itch, showing that the mechanisms underlying pain are pretty similar, at least in that respect, to the mechanisms underlying itch. So this, of course, begs the question, how does the brain know that activation of this TRIP A channel over here in this neuron is painful, but this one over here is itchy?
1: So TRIP A1 is an ion channel that doesn't seem to be active under normal conditions which is really great, especially when you're thinking about targets to treat that your pain. Mm-hmm. What activates trip A1, at least what we know so far, is that it's really acting as a receptor operated channel and gets activated downstream of different G protein coupled receptors and cytokine receptors. And so I think that it's not the ion channel per se that would define the function, but rather who is and what stimuli are activating
0: mm-hmm
1: what cell to activate trip a one.
0: So you could still have two different neurons that have two different G protein receptors that respond to different kinds of stimuli, both of them, which would then downstream hit trip a one and cause it to be activated. So what's the intuition behind having a common downstream channel for these kind of noxious stimuli?
1: It's an interesting question. And so we know that itch and pain are intimately linked. They share some of the same signaling pathways. They share the same types of cells. And perhaps it's because they're all noxious stimuli. It's thought that itch has evolved to get rid of, say, malaria, carrying mosquitoes, preventing infection. So I think itch and pain trigger these instinctive protective reflexes, wiping something away, releasing a noxious hot pan. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's also a lot of interaction between the circuits because we know that if you scratch your arm really hard, it hurts. But if you itch and you scratch your arm, it feels good. Right. Yeah. There's this intimate interaction. And I think they're both serving protective purposes, at least under acute conditions. When it comes to chronic, then it really is not a productive reflex to scratch. And that's a big clinical problem right now.
0: So earlier this year, your lab published a paper where you used a star-nosed mole as a model organism for studying the molecular mechanism's underlying touch. So first of all, for listeners who are unfamiliar with a star-nosed mole, I urge you to Google image search it immediately, as I'm not sure words really do it justice. But nonetheless, can you describe what a star-nosed mole looks like?
1: Okay. So they are small, I guess the size of a fat mouse. It's a mole, but... Instead of a regular nose on the front of its face, it has a large, pink, fleshy, I think it looks like a starfish-type organ, and um, they look like fingers, in a sense, because they move independently of one another. There's 22 appendages, and as the mole is digging underground, it doesn't come above ground very often, this touch organ is probing the surface of the tunnel system, looking for small insects that other animals can't detect.
0: So... What do you know about the history behind the use of the star-nosed mole as a model organism? I mean, it, it seems like a kind of a kind of a bizarre thing for a scientist to decide to pick up and bring into the lab.
1: <laughs> yeah, there are a few other labs who have studied star-nosed moles, and especially, but I think the main person that a lot of people know is our mole whisperer, is Ken Catania at Vanderbilt University, who's our collaborator, and he's spent a lot of time proving that this organ sticking out of the front of the mole's face is actually a tactile organ. And even though it surrounds the nose, it's not a nose. Mm -hmm. Neurons that project to the structure are not going to the olfactory centers in the brain, but rather they all project to the trigeminal ganglia. And he's done really beautiful work over the last 15 years to really show this. There were some other crazy ideas that it was an electric organ. (laughs) So...
0: So, in this paper, you showed that the star organ is innervated primarily by light touch sensitive neurons and relatively few nocioceptors. And in this way, it's pretty different from the mammalian somatosensory ganglia. Could you explain in a little more detail what some of the differences are between these two types of sensory modalities and why the star nosed mole may have evolved to be different in this way?
1: Yeah, if you look at the somatosensory system of most animals, whether you're looking at the trigeminal ganglia, whose neurons innervate the head, or the dorsal ganglia that innervate the rest of the body, there's a mixture of neurons that mediate light touch sensations and neurons that mediate painful sensations. And if you look at the ganglia itself, it's about 60 pain, 40 touch, just counting neurons. And that's true in the mole body, but when you look at the tactile organ and the trigeminal ganglia that innervates it, we see that there's a very different distribution where you see many, many more neurons that mediate light tactile sensations and very few nociceptors. And when we look at the star organ itself and analyze the types of fibers that innervate it, we see very few nociceptors. This got us really excited because a lot of labs are trying to identify the molecular mechanisms that mediate light touch versus pain and trying to identify molecular markers to sort these different classes of neurons. And we thought, why should we do that? Nature's done it for us. We could just look at the Starno's trigeminal ganglia to see what molecules are enriched there and compare it to the dorsal root ganglia that innervate the body. And that that would give us a nice opportunity to classify molecules that we assume in the trigeminal ganglia mediate touch and dorsal mm-hmm. ganglia mediate pain.
0: So that sounds like a sort of a happy accident. But what was your motivation for starting to have your lab explore this peculiar organism?
1: Well, I think if you look in neuroscience, there's this wonderful history of taking advantage of these anomalies in nature. Mm-hmm. Look at the electric organ of the eel; being able to use that to find an enriched population and identify ion channels, and and that was really our idea: is to look for animals. That have highly specialized tactile systems to characterize them, and if possible, to use them to identify the molecules that mediate whatever sensation that they're endowed with.
0: Well, if you're if you're willing to disclose, you seem to suggest that there are plural. What what is the next weird, uh, weird weird organism you you plan on looking
1: at? You know, there's actually a lot of animals that rely on their sense of touch to hunt prey. Tactile appendages are found in tentacled snakes. They have these two tentacles that are innervated by the trigeminal system that they use to hunt small fish. Also, if you look at alligators, that classical image of them sitting in the water with their eyes looking around but snout partially submerged. They have a variety of specialized tactile domes that line their jaw, again, innervated by the trigeminal system that allow them to detect very small changes in water pressure.
0: So you're taking a uh, crocodile wrestling lessons now in order to
1: <laughs> Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So When I was in, in the dark room doing imaging and patch clamping, I never thought I would do any field work whatsoever.
0: <laughs> so could, finally, could you just give us a brief teaser for what you plan on talking to us about at Stanford?
1: Of course. Everybody wants to see the movies of the mole, and so I will definitely talk about our Star Nose Mole Project and the types of molecules that we've been able to identify from studying their tactile organ, and then how we took that information to move to a more genetically tractable system, the mouse, and show some of the candidate mechanotransducers we've identified. And I'll also talk about some of our recent work on itch sensation. And um, we started getting interested in chronic itch. And I'll talk about some of our efforts to understand the neural mechanisms that drive atopic dermatitis or eczema.
0: Okay, we'll look forward to it. So to close our interview, we like to ask a series of rapid fire, short answer questions. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, not a graduate student in general, but yourself specifically, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I would say don't worry about your career and don't stress out about how long it takes to get through graduate school or how long you're in your postdoc. I think if you just follow the interesting science and, it will, and the rest will take care of itself.
0: So what was your favorite way to relax when you were a student here at Stanford?
1: My favorite way to relax, hmm, let's see. i say my friends and I, the other students in, in MCB, we would like to go out and drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely.
0: It's, you know, some things are timeless.
1: Exactly. And also um, lots of outdoors things, so did a lot of backcountry skiing as well. Oh, really? Tell my graduate advisor Rich. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, So we talked a little bit about the specialized nature of the star organ of the star-nosed mole. So if you could design your own custom sensory organ, what kind of specializations would you give it and why?
1: Oh, fun question. Of course, I'm interested in touch and pain. And so I would say that I would design an organism that has a different Organ for each type of sense of touch, which we think there are at least over twenty, so <laughs> specialized for each different types of touch sensation that I think we don't really talk about. I think touch is taken for granted, and
0: right, yeah,
1: yeah because of that, not a lot about it.
0: <laughs> it reminds me of the science festival that I was uh, volunteering at a booth, and we were doing touch, and I, they had set it up where they had to the little kids had to reach into the bags and feel around and kind of describe what the object was, and we did that, but it was getting boring, so then we had these pennies and I I got some dry ice and I put one of the pennies on dry ice and then I would hold up the two pennies and I would say, can you tell these two pennies apart? And of course the kids would say no because they think they know what touch is, and then I put it on their hands, and they think, oh, oh, yeah, of course I could tell the difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely these interactions between these different stimuli, it's a really interesting area of research,
0: too. So if I could ask you to remember the first experiment that you ever did, what's the thing that pops into your head?
1: I remember recording light-evoked responses from a drosophila photoreceptor, very exciting, and it's that thrill of electrophysiology where you get an instant answer that always kept me going back to patch clamping.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Patisa. Great. Thank you. And uh, thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuroblog.stanford.edu.